from WNYC in New York. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. After hurricanes Harvey and Irma left their marks on the U.S. and the Caribbean, this week marked yet more devastation. It is hard to exaggerate what has happened to Puerto Rico. Hurricane Maria has left the entire island without power. A powerful magnitude 7.1 earthquake struck central Mexico today. Panicked residents poured into the streets as buildings crumbled. This barrage of disaster undermines traditional storm coverage with its ramp up and landing and fallout. Now it seems the end overtakes the beginning. It's a stupefying deluge. Not like the other big story this week and every week, which resembles the drip, drip, drip of Chinese water torture. I refer, of course, to the ongoing investigations of possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign in the run-up to the election, where each disclosure drops with a splat and then kind of evaporates, leaving us to wonder, what's it all mean? New reports that Mueller is also zeroing in on Facebook over Russia-backed accounts there. What Facebook says is that it got $100,000 from a troll farm in Russia. CNN has learned that government investigators wiretapped former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort under secret court orders before and after the election. And we're told that there are intercepted communications, Don, that did raise concerns among investigators about whether Manafort was encouraging Russians to help the campaign. The Times also reporting that Manafort and his legal team were told he's likely to be indicted. And on Wednesday, the Times and the Washington Post both report Mueller wants documents in 13 different areas, all separate categories. What were they looking for? And what does it all mean for the Mueller investigation? We don't know. It could lead to multiple convictions, perhaps even the impeachment of a president. Or it may be a maze that concludes in a dead end. Perhaps we'll understand the significance of every leak, subpoena, and revelation once the puzzle is pieced together. But that could take a while, which makes it hard to know just what exactly our responsibility is as savvy news consumers. History tells us that it's the journalist's responsibility to keep investigating the investigation. The Democratic National Committee is trying to solve a spy mystery. It began before dawn Saturday when five intruders were captured by police inside the offices of the committee in Washington. Good evening. I'm Dan Rather. As you probably know by now, seven persons were indicted today for trying to cover up the Watergate scandals. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Incremental news is unsatisfying, both for citizens and journalists alike. We report and wait, and you listen and wait. But that's the best. In fact, it's all responsible actors can do. Russia moves stealthily in media channels, and the White House is on alert. Yahoo reported last week that Russian-run media outlets Sputnik and RT, or Russia Today, are facing pressure from the U.S. government to register as foreign agents under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938, essentially branding their reports as propaganda. Is that a reasonable action or a wild overreaction? Max Seddon is the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times. He says that there is more to be lost than gained, mainly because the problem 
is small. RT has such bad ratings in the U.S. that they don't even participate in the Nielsen ratings. They paid for their own Nielsen rating, which they said gave them good numbers, but they don't disclose it. They were the first TV channel to get a billion views on YouTube. But if you look at the things that are still today the most popular RT videos on YouTube, most of it is stuff that's nothing to do with Russia or with their political agenda at all. Videos of the tsunami in Japan in, in 2011, memes that you might remember, like the homeless man in America who had a beautiful singing voice and became this viral star. It sometimes strikes me that the only really avid watchers of RT are the people in the U.S. and Europe who are warning about how dangerous it is. There have been critics who say, even though RT has a relatively small audience, there's various lies, outrages, and heavily partisan attacks kind of infused into the fake news ecosystem, get traction, and then become part of the relatively mainstream political conversation. I don't think that's true at all. I think it's quite the opposite. They just try to pick up on things that are already very big on Breitbart and on alt-right Twitter and other places where these people get their news. Those are the people who are driving the conversations. It's not a bunch of Russian guys sitting in some basement in St. Petersburg who are you know, nefariously pulling the strings from afar. Now, putting aside reach and impact, let's just talk about the naked politics of this. There's this guy called Andrew Feinberg who went to work for Sputnik in Washington as the White House correspondent. He stays there for five months and cites chapter and verse, you know, truly disgraceful political interference by his management. I'm being fed questions top down. It's really pushing a narrative that doesn't comport with reality. Based on my experience there, I would argue that Sputnik is not functioning as a bona fide news agency. He believes that this foreign agent registration solution is just the ticket. Why is he wrong? It's a funny notion. The editor has a phone on her desk that goes straight to the Kremlin. And then you're shocked to find Russian propaganda going on at this <laughs> Russian propaganda network. But with regards to the foreign agent legislation, it's particularly sad to see America starting to play Russia's game. I don't know if you saw yesterday, Morgan Freeman released this uh, very strange video. We have been attacked. We are at war. And we owe it to the brave people who have fought and died to protect this great nation and save democracy. And we owe it to our future generations to continue the fight. And this, this is exactly the way that Russia has seen the West for many years. They think that America is waging information war against Russia, that Western media are just uh, pawns of their governments, just like Russian media is. And it's uh, disturbing to see, as this scandal goes on, that, that a lot of people in the U.S. are adopting the same worldview, that it is information war, that we have to fight back. And if the U.S. does something that is perceived in Russia, as it will be, as suppressing free speech, we are going to be immediately called uh, hypocrites for lecturing Russia about human rights and free press and then behaving this way on our own shores. Absolutely. The Russian foreign ministry has already promised to retaliate in some unspecified way against American media if uh, their actions taken against 
RT and Sputnik, but where it's really a gift to Russia is on the rhetorical level. And this goes back to an old Cold War tradition called uh, whataboutism. Whenever the U.S. would criticize Russia for some human rights abuses, you know, why are you sending dissidents away to be locked up in camps in Siberia? The Soviet response would always be, oh, yes, but you're violating the rights of black people. And the way that you push back against that was uh, by setting a better example rather than just what abouting the what aboutism. There's what about this isms, but there's also relative truth. And there can be some truth in the flaws of the Western media. And then there is the naked propagandism of state media, particularly in Russia. Is that not an issue in considering what to do with RT and Sputnik? In terms of degree, there's no comparison whatsoever. That is certainly the case. I'm not trying to defend RT and Sputnik in any way. I think uh, the, the issue is that when you start doing that, you're just playing the Russian government's game. The Russian government already does have people who sit around and they decide what is media and, and what is not. The Russian foreign ministry even has on their website a fake news section where they post screenshots of articles they don't like, put a stamp that says fake news on the article, and then usually don't even try to refute the the article on its merits. And it shouldn't be the business of the U.S. government to decide who is a journalist and who is a propagandist, because then uh, we're just doing the same things that they do. There are striking similarities between the modus of Russia today and Sputnik and our own homegrown right-wing media and of the White House itself, as far as that goes, with the reflexive uh, dismissal of unfavorable coverage as fake news. But those are domestic players, and Russia today and Sputnik are from a relatively hostile foreign government. So is the First Amendment really what is at play here? I think absolutely. Look, Russia is an authoritarian country that has its own propaganda networks, but how effective they are and how much you allow this to affect what's happening on your country, it really says much more about what's happening in the country. All you have to do is look at France. Before Donald Trump came along, France was absolutely supposed to be the big place where they thought they were going to have gains. They were really behind Marine Le Pen. You even had this WikiLeaks-style email dump on the eve of the first round of the French election that was called Macron Leaks that may or may not have been done by Russia. And the effect of it was basically zero. I think it says a lot more about the health of the media atmosphere and the political system in, in general in France that there were similar things done in those countries, and they've had little to no effect. If Russia, by retweeting a few hashtags and broadcasting this political channel, if you really think that that is what's going to sway your election, allow them to install some sort of Manchurian candidate of the president, you have a problem with your own country and your own democracy more than you do with Russia. Max, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Max Seddon is the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times. Coming up, the Russian ads on Facebook were targeted and transitory. But there's an app for that. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. 
And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. If RT is an influencer, it's fish food compared to Facebook. The social media giant has boasted of its power to boost turnout for national elections. And, as we've learned in recent weeks, it's enabled foreign propagandists to organize pro-Trump rallies in Florida or put ads into the news feeds of swing state voters. Another statement coming out from Facebook today, uh, it said that they sold about $100,000 of advertisements to what they call inauthentic accounts operated out of Russia during the campaign. It's also believed the Russians may have had specific data about who to target with those ads, gleaned perhaps from election data. Tonight, the Wall Street Journal reporting that other news. Facebook has given the Mueller team even more information about these Russian accounts that bought campaign ads on Facebook. Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller and congressional investigators may have information about these ads now, but we don't, and maybe never will, because these were web ads, not subject to campaign finance rules that apply to TV and radio. Neither Facebook nor its Russian advertisers are required to disclose anything. And because Facebook's algorithm can target ads based on interest, Joe the Snowmobile fan may see an ad that Joe the Accountability fan or Joe the Journalist will not. Julia Angwin is a senior reporter at ProPublica and is leading an initiative which she hopes will empower the public to monitor political ads on Facebook. Julia, welcome to the show. Great to be here. As you wrote in a recent piece for ProPublica, the nature of online advertising is such that ads appear on screens for just a few hours and are limited to the audience that the advertiser has chosen. So... If an advertiser micro-targets a group such as 40-year-old female motorcyclists in Nashville, Tennessee, with a misleading ad, it's unlikely that anyone other than the bikers will see those ads, right? Online advertising is our first sort of entrance into this very ephemeral and very micro-targeted world of political ads where it's very possible, like this case of the Russian ads, that no one could have seen them except the people to whom they were targeting. So last year, actually, I did a crowdsourcing project where we asked people to share with us the Facebook ad categories they were assigned to, and we got a list of 50,000 ad categories. And that ranges from cat lovers to people who are lactose intolerant? Yeah. I mean, there were some crazy ad categories that we saw. One was people who like to pretend that they're texting in awkward situations. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Facebook knows a lot about people. One point of speculation is that the Russian trolls must have had some insider info. Is that true, or does Facebook just do the work for them? Uh, You know, you don't really need a lot of insider info to target ads on Facebook. There's a little drop-down menu, and you go in, and you're like, do you want men or women, and what age? And then you type in the interest you want, and either an ad category will show up or it won't. It's basically 
depends on whether they have enough people in that category. Mm -hmm. So you can go sort of looking for whatever your dream group is, and you may well find it. You're most likely going to find it. So 100000 bucks In American politics, that sounds like peanuts, right? It is peanuts for politics, but it's a lot of money on Facebook. People do ad buys for a dollar, for $5, because if you're reaching just a very small group of people who like a certain pet on a certain zip code, which you can do on Facebook, there might not be that many of them. Now, when Congress passed McCain-Feingold back in 2002, it didn't, it probably couldn't foresee the political problem that the Internet would pose. That's right. The McCain-Feingold law basically says that if you advertise in the last 30 to 60 days before an election on an issue, basically anything that doesn't just say vote for my candidate, that you have to disclose that ad by. You have to say, I'm the political action committee for this person or that Mm -hmm. person. There's no disclosure on spending. And as you described, there's no disclosure on content either. Because if it comes by for 30 seconds and makes an impression on some highly targeted demographic and then vanishes, leaving no record behind, what's an accountability person like yourself to do? Right. I honestly have very rarely seen a situation where there's so much public interest and so little accountability. So you launched this project slightly called Political Ad Collector, which I guess we can shorten to pack. Yeah, we wanted to figure out a way to capture these ads before they disappear. The only way we could think of was to build sort of a crowdsourcing tool. People install a little bit of software in their web browser, and when they're on Facebook, it just pulls the ads out and asks, are these political or not? And then if they're political, we send them to this public repository that everyone could see So we finally have a public database of what are the political ads that are being shown on Facebook. Okay, this is fascinating. The reason why this is a crowdsourcing project is because a machine can't recognize a political ad. So you have to teach that machine. Yeah, I mean, look, I would like to say we have done a very nice job of teaching our machine. Just based on the software programming that my colleague Jeff Larson wrote, it is 80 to 90 percent accurate. But we need humans to get us to that top. 100%. Mm-hmm. And so we asked people to confirm whether or not it's truly a political ad. Now that we've launched it, we realized that already there's quite a bit of political advertising in the U.S. What are you seeing? I'll just read you mm-hmm. a couple of the headlines of the ads we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Ending DACA means mass deportation, period. Tax march. Some in Congress are trying to pass a tax bill that would give billions more to the richest. We can't let them get away with it, right? So these are political ads that are running on issues that are up right now. I notice those are both liberal ads. And I wonder if that's generally what you're getting because the people you're reaching out to are predominantly liberal. Yeah, we've thought about that issue. I think everyone has an interest in having this tool work for everybody. But we have to get our message out to conservatives who might not be reading ProPublica. And we haven't figured out our strategy, to be honest. If any one of your listeners has an uncle (laughs) that they want to share it with. But we are probably going to try to find, maybe we'll have a non-traditional partnership, like we could reach out with Breitbart or something. I mean, we have all sorts of partnerships at ProPublica. And it would be kind of fun for me to do our first (laughs) right-wing partnership. (laughs) Ultimately, what do you want your project to do? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, people always frame this around Russia, but 
I actually think that the issue is much larger than that. The truth is we haven't had an election where you could automate your lying to these crowds and never have anyone see or know about it. The last time that an election happened where one candidate told different things to different parts of the country was William Henry Harrison. And he actually was the reason we set up the traveling national press corps for presidential elections, because he would say one thing in the North and another thing in the South, and no one knew. So then the press realized we have to follow this guy around. Well, Facebook has basically this ability to do exactly what he did. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you. Julia Angwin is a senior reporter at ProPublica. If you want to enlist in their effort by downloading the political ad collector, just go to ProPublica.org slash PAC. Facebook seems to be feeling the heat because on Thursday afternoon, founder Mark Zuckerberg took to the friendly precincts of Facebook Live to assure us that change was a-coming. Maybe the most important step we're taking is we're going to make political advertising more transparent. Not only will you have to disclose which page paid for an ad, but we will also make it so you can visit an advertiser's page and see the ads that they're currently running to any audience on Facebook. We will roll this out over the coming months, and we will work with others to create a new standard for transparency in online political ads. Okay, Mark. This time we'll be watching you. What inspired Facebook's sudden burst of sunlight? Why, love of democracy, of course. Facebook's mission is all about giving people a voice and bringing people closer together. Those are democratic values, and we're proud of them. I don't want anyone to use our tools to undermine democracy. That's not what we stand for. But this year in Silicon Valley, oligarchy seemed the operative word. I'm not referring just to the Russian ad sales, but to the recent revelation that Twitter, Facebook, and Google have all allowed advertisers to use racist language in their ad targeting. And then there's the proliferation of fake news and propaganda and the ongoing surrender of our privacy. What is to be done? Well, according to Matt Stoller, a fellow at the Open Markets Institute, it's not nibbling at the edges, but a fundamental restructuring of these juggernauts. And he believes the solution begins with properly naming the problem, monopoly. Matt, welcome to OTM. Thanks. Where we see tech companies behaving badly, you see classic monopoly behavior. Right. They are controlling entire branches of trade and industry. In this case, it's the advertising industry and what is called in Silicon Valley the attention economy. The consequences of this are actually what one might call absentee ownership. So it's not like Facebook is planning to undermine democracy. They're not in a hollowed-out volcano in Silicon Valley trying to figure out how to destroy the world. No, no, these aren't villains, right? I mean, the engineers in Silicon Valley, the product managers, many of the executives are really trying to improve the world. I love Google. I use Google. Facebook is incredibly useful. I use Twitter all the time. These are amazing technologies. The problem is the way that we've let this attention economy totally unregulated and the way that we've done no antitrust investigations has caused all of this sort of collateral damage. And it's actually undermining our democracy. It's undermining social cohesion. They are effectively private governments. And if we don't get a hold of them, then they will increasingly govern us. Is Mark Zuckerberg John D. Rockefeller? Is he a robber baron? He is a robber baron. There is no question 
there's an argument that he's more powerful than John D. Rockefeller was in his day, just because John D. Rockefeller could organize communities and companies, but he couldn't go down to the individual level, whereas Mark Zuckerberg can actually manipulate people's minds. It sounds kind of crazy, but this is what insiders are coming out and starting to talk about. The attention economy is organized to just grab hold of your brain using all of these manipulative techniques to keep you using it. What we're seeing is it's breeding all of this sort of divisive behavior. When you use a lot of Facebook services, you get jealous, you get angry, you debate in unproductive and hostile ways. It keeps you using their products, but you're becoming a angrier, less happy person. It's threatening community bonds. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. But you don't believe that a little regulation at the margins is really the solution? What we need is investigations of these business entities. We need to know how they operate. The advertising market is incredibly complicated and has turned from a sort of madman-style agency-based model to a complex financial marketplace where your eyeballs are bought and sold like stocks or bonds or credit instruments, and there's all sorts of market manipulation going on there. These are very complex marketplaces, and regulators and enforcers need to actually start looking at them so that we can actually address it, whether that's with antitrust enforcement lawsuits, regulatory tools, or structural separation of parts of these companies, public utility regulations. I mean, there's a whole suite of anti-monopoly tools that we can use to get a hold of these institutions. Let's talk about public sentiment. There was a time when trust-busting was a populistic notion, and those days seem to be behind us. Why? The way to understand kind of regulation and political economy is that you have sovereignty. Someone's going to be in charge. And in the late 70s, early 80s, for a variety of reasons, people were essentially persuaded that we should move sovereign power away from public institutions and vest it in private companies. And so you saw deregulation, you saw union busting, and you saw merger waves, and you've seen ultimately the growth of these institutions like Amazon, Facebook, Google, who are governing our society. They are regulating our society. It's always amusing to hear people talk about deregulation when, of course, everybody knows that we are heavily regulated. We are just regulated by private actors, not public ones. And so this was an intellectual revolution that people didn't really fight for a whole lot of reasons because it came both on the right and the left. And now we're in a place where people are recognizing that there is something seriously wrong with our institutions They are not managing risk effectively. They are not delivering productivity and democracy itself. And our survival is actually increasingly at risk. So we're returning to what you pointed out was a more populist type of error. And we're saying, you know what? We need to bring sovereignty and vest it back in public institutions, in democratic institutions. And that's what antitrust rules and public regulation actually means. Okay, smart guy. You are (laughs) suggesting that what we need is public sentiment to coalesce against the kind of monopolistic powers we have vested in these two or three companies. However, considering the current administration, considering the view that jobs are the godhead and business should be left alone, considering the utility that these companies afford, I mean, all the forces seem to be arrayed against any kind of citizen revolt. I mean, the villagers are not running through the streets with flaming torches. It is happening. I mean, we are all having these debates now, which we weren't having even a year ago. 
It's happening among Republicans. It's happening among Democrats. It's happening in the business world. You know, as the entire retail sector gets savaged by Amazon, as we see foreign influence in our elections and this incredible secrecy, people are waking up and actually debating the structure of our political economy for the first time in a really long time. Maybe you cocktail in different places than I do, but I don't think there's any evidence that the electorate cares one whit about a lot of this stuff. I mean, FTC, consumer welfare, monopolies, these are the kinds of subjects that make the public's eyes glaze over. I'm tired of hearing from people that the public doesn't understand. People interact a thousand times a day with corporations. People understand monopoly. When that guy in United got beaten up, they understood what that meant. Everybody gets billed by their cable companies every month, and they know they're getting ripped off. There's private polling showing that they get it. It's actually kind of offensive at this point. People are not stupid. The thing that people don't understand is the gibberish in D.C. about all the dumb micro-scandals that don't matter to them. The messages that work are the ones that attack Wall Street, that attack powerful interests, and the reason they work is because people know that they're screwing them. People on the Beltway think that voters are stupid, but voters are not stupid, and they understand what is happening. But there is a difference, is there not, between understanding, even at a visceral level, and demanding action. You can understand, but if you dismiss things with a shrug, you can't fight City Hall and you can't fight Facebook, I've got to worry about my car payment this month. The understanding gets you nowhere. My question is, how do you get rid of that shrug? That's a really important question. There was a change election in 2006, a change election in 2008, a change election in 2010, a change election in 2014, a change election in 2016. So my conclusion is people want change. The problem isn't actually communicating with the public and having the public vote for change. The problem is that the policymakers keep lying. The way that you have to fix that, and this is what we do at Open Markets, but it's also what's happening at large, is you have to develop new economic models, new legal frameworks, new policy tools to allow policymakers to take the anger that the voters are showing, the desperation, the desire for change that voters are showing, and actually translate that into policy action. And I'm really hopeful. I mean, we've had crushing disappointments just in terms of the willingness of our public officials to actually govern. And now... We're starting to see the beginnings of a movement of people in politics who are saying enough is enough, and we are going to take back our society and take back our democracy. Now, Matt, I'm going to do something that I've never done, but I hear it all the time on cable news, and I've I've kind of always wanted to say this. Sure. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Matt, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, man. Matt Stoller is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. Coming up, do the tech giants need a code of ethics? This is on the media. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) 
regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. To the founders and users of the social media platform called Gab, Google and Twitter are the imperious masters of a left-wing social web that imperils our freedom of speech. Gab's a year-old platform that resembles Twitter or Reddit, but with a Pepe the Frog lookalike logo and a far-right reputation. Our brief visit to Gab suggests that it serves a wide range of users. We exchanged welcoming and illuminating tweets with many of them, extolling its freewheeling chat. We also received some racist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic slurs. In fact, I'll quote one such tweet in the interview, so be warned. And certainly, Gab is better known for hosting neo-Nazis, anti-PC provocateurs, and other nihilistic trolls. On August 17th, Google cited Gab's lax moderation policies and hateful content when it ejected Gab from the Android App Store. Nor can it be found on the Apple App Store. Utsav Sanduja is the chief operating officer of Gab. Welcome to On the Media. Thank you. Appreciate it. Did I characterize Gab correctly, at least in the public eye? With all due respect, we noticed that this is primarily perceived by very ardent, politically correct individuals Mm -hmm. and outlets. The mainstream public at large sees us much more nuanced than that. We are a company that is about ensuring that freedom of speech is protected on the Internet because Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and the rest have not. We do not work with venture capitalists, big advertisers, or take corporate or government subsidies. The other thing about Gab, this frog is actually not even close to looking like Pepe. The frog's name is Gabby, and Gabby is symbolic of the plague of the frogs that we are releasing on Silicon Valley. Andrew Torba, our CEO, is a very ardent Protestant Christian. And for him, it was about seeing all the injustice in Silicon Valley, where conservatives were being persecuted, libertarians being persecuted. And he wanted to essentially fight back. And the frog is emblematic of that spirit. Let's talk about your suit against Google. Sure. I have a sense of your passion because you wrote on Gab, Hey, Google, go F yourself. What is the basis of your lawsuit? Because the First Amendment only protects a person from censorship against the government. Our lawsuit is not actually based on the First Amendment. Our lawsuit is based on antitrust, anti-competitive behavior. Mm -hmm. It is based on Section 230. Of the Communications Act? Correct, which prevents social media sites from being responsible for the content of the users. For Google to hold us to the content of other users on our site is insane. It's completely a ridiculous proposition. The Daily Stormer, which I think we can agree is an explicit anti-Semitic racist site, has had trouble finding a digital home in recent times, as have other purveyors of hate, and they're seeking help from something called the Free Speech Alliance, There was a great piece in Slate recently that explained an effort by the alt-right to build basically a kind of 
alternative internet, a, a series of social media platforms, their own domains, and so on. Would you tell me what it is? Sure. So I think we can agree that the Daily Stormer is a very provocative organization. I think we can Whether go further not, than that, can't we? I don't think so, because I personally... He talks about slaughtering the non-Aryan okay. hordes. Okay, there's a content on Facebook and there's content on Twitter where ISIS regularly talks of beheading people, and their materials are never taken down. They are taken down, but comparing the Daily Stormer to ISIS, I will agree that they're both (laughs) hate sites. Will you? I don't know what this... Okay, instead of getting debates on politics, let's get to the heart of this question. (laughs) The Alltech Alliance is an organization that has over 100-plus engineers most of them in Silicon Valley tech companies. These engineers are working in building a decentralized web system that is free from the corruption of Google, the corruption of Apple, and SJW politics. What's SJW? Social Justice Warrior. It also enfranchises individual users to be free from payment transaction companies like PayPal, which is very corrupt, and other institutions that refuse to do business simply because they disagree with their political speech. We want to see a world where free discourse can exist, and that includes skepticism towards cultural Marxism, skepticism towards this egalitarianism on steroids, skepticism towards questioning whether or not certain accepted, say, for example, postmodernism should be allowed in society. We want to allow people to exercise lawful speech without big corporations, big advertisers, and government agencies putting their fingers in. I went through the responses to John Hanrahan, our producer's request for information on the site, and we had quite a few people who tried to explain why they were on the site, expressing their desire to engage, that they felt a greater sense of freedom on the site. We also had a lot of words that I can't use on the radio. One of the uh, less polite responses we got was, please say 1488 and GTKRWN to at Brooke Gladstone for me with lots of uh, parentheses around my name. I had to look that stuff up because I don't know the code. 14 refers to the words, the beauty of the white Aryan woman will not perish from the earth. 88 means Heil Hitler. G-T-K-R-W-N means gas the kikes, race war now. Is it really all that important for you to defend this kind of speech? We don't defend that kind of speech. We defend the First Amendment. The Supreme Court made very clear in a unanimous decision that all speech, including hate speech, is protected speech. The left lectures us all the time. I remember this in the 90s during the cultural wars. Oh, everyone's morality is different. Hate is bad. Love is good. Yada, yada, nonsense. I remember this with the whole gay marriage debacle. Mm -hmm. And I remember how the right was demonized that their morality should not interfere in common affairs of the public. Now the left sanctimoniously, condescendingly tells us what proper morality is. I don't think so. If you want a fair and just society, either you allow all types of morality to be heard, or you have a morality-free state. The fact that the left is preaching their morality against everyone else, shoving it down their throats, 
is unacceptable. What you're going to end up doing is creating a lot of hate. Now, speaking that post, that is unfortunate that occurred, but I'm not going to virtue signal here and suggest to you that, okay, you know, this speech is so bad, therefore now let's go ban it. No, the simple answer is this. Hate speech can be combated with other speech, not through dictatorship, not through coercion. Now, you're using the First Amendment to mean free speech because the First Amendment does not protect people against corporations, only against the government. Unless you truly believe that Google is somehow an explicit arm of the government. Yes, they are. Absolutely, they are. Google and Apple are key infrastructures of civil society, just like the railway, just like oil companies, just like other major institutions. And they need to be regulated as a public monopoly as they are. And that is why we are urging members of Congress to get on the ball and start regulating companies that do not um, allow the rights of everyday Americans while having so much power over everyday society. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Utsav Sanduja is the Chief Operating Officer of GAB. During the course of preparing this hour, it struck us that the giant companies that rule the Internet are in dire need of a code of ethics, not for their users, but for themselves. Why don't they have one? Often, when we have a thorny problem like this, we put in a call to technology writer, commentator, and entrepreneur, Paul Ford. Welcome back to the show, Paul. It's great to be here. Thank you. This is a week where Facebook, getting slammed for the speech it allowed on its platform, and also for the speech it's apparently suppressing. The episode that caught your eye recently involves posts from Rohingya activists in Burma. What happened there? The Daily Beast reported on it, and what happened is that in Burma, the Rohingya activists were having their accounts erased and posts erased and things they were putting up erased. And it's not really clear what's going on. Some actor, whether it's automated or whether it's a human being, is saying, get rid of that person, get rid of that speech. That's not good for our platform. And Facebook, being kind of semi-robotic, often goes, oh, yeah, all right. The Muslim ethnic minority is being persecuted, maybe ethnically cleansed. Mm -hmm. Facebook, though, responded to criticism by saying, we work hard to strike the right balance between enabling expression while providing a safe and respectful experience. I mean, that's a canned message, right? Like the wrong spokesperson essentially got in there and was like, oh, I know what to say. But this is ethnic cleansing. And so it requires a, a far more serious response to a journalist's inquiry. It just makes it seem like a giant faceless organization that doesn't care. And at some point, seeming like and being is a, is a really tricky boundary. This is a problem with these organizations. They get really big really fast, and they can't grow up at the speed at which they become a fundamental utility that controls how millions or billions of people get their information. And so you end up in this situation over and over again where the giant Internet organism did this damn thing. And we're going like, why would it do that damn thing? Well, let's talk about why. The economics of the business is part of it. Look, you go to a computer and you say, hey, give me that thing over there. And it goes, got it. 
a millisecond and it's in your hands, right? That thing could be an advertisement. It could be a blog post. It could be a hateful ethnic screed about how everyone should be murdered. Computer doesn't care. It's really, really fast. And then what you're saying here is what needs to happen is you have to add friction to it. In order to apply ethics, you have to slow things down. You have to throw sand in the gas tank. Sand in this form is human beings. You know, I'll give you an example. There's been a lot of coverage of this. There are vast places in, like, the Philippines and other spots where content that might be pornographic, that might be offensive, there are people looking at it and reviewing it and saying, this is offensive, this is not. There are people who review things for the German market because the laws there are very specific about what you can and can't say about Nazism and anti-Semitism, right? And so law becomes a source of, like, okay, we better do it. But in the U.S., there are very few restrictions on speech. It's built into the core of the nation. Hate speech is legal. Well, now you're into the fundamental question of all this stuff, right? Because Facebook is its own entity. It might have the power of a nation state because it's at that scale, but it's its own entity. And so it has the choice, as does Twitter, as does Google, as to what kind of content will flow through its system. Right. So you have them reflexively taking down a site posted by uh, Rohingya activists who are in imminent danger of death and want the world to know. Right. And reflexively, through the same highly efficient technology, selling targeted anti-Semitic ads. Sure. The things that are supposed to help you control abusive speech are probably the things that are cutting off the Rohingya activists. Sheryl Sandberg is, um, boy, the see-something of Facebook, the second-in-command to Mark Zuckerberg and sometimes the first-in-command, I mm -hmm. think. And, and she just put up on Facebook you know, what they're going to do about the anti-Semitic advertising uh, demographic categories. She's like, yeah, okay, we got people reviewing everything, and then we turned it off, we looked through everything, and now we're turning it back on. Thing is, is they should have seen this coming. They should have been in charge of their own ad product, and mm -hmm. they should have had people on it. This is one of the major revenue-driving products for a bazillion-dollar company, and it let you buy demographic information by, like, people who want to burn Jews. Like, that is a disaster. Now, for Facebook... To really get into their content, they have to start acting like a media company. And the minute they start acting like a media company, no longer just a tech interface, they're subject to all kinds of regulation. And that could play havoc with their business model. So it has to admit to being, in fact, what it really is in order to deal with these ethical problems that have such a broad impact. See, this is incredibly tricky for an organization like Facebook and, and Google and so on, because they are media companies at one level, right? They produce content that people read. Tech companies never want to align themselves with media because it's a terrible, non-profitable industry. Like they so just, they can't be ethical. They have to pretend that they're not media. They can. But the thing is, is you don't have the definition around tech ethics in the same way you do around media. Mm -hmm. Aside from a, a few thinkers, there isn't like some giant academic discipline that they can just go to and say, hey, what should we do? Media ethics. I can go read two books and then I kind of know how I need to behave as a journalist. There's nothing like this. The stakes are incalculably high. Right, and you have a relatively small number of people trying to process and react to that. And I think that's your hugest failure point, right? Like someone wasn't looking and didn't think to themselves, hey, we should make sure that our ad product isn't really critical of Jews. 
What about an ad product that is explicitly paid for by the Russians targeted towards voters? Sure. At one point, the Trump organization literally said, like, you know, Facebook's ad product was really critical for us in those last days. What's the solution, Paul? Basically, what's happening is this, they're embarrassed by the press and they're creating an ethos on the fly as a form of PR. They have zillions of dollars. They're going to work this out. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad for our culture, but there's no easy path here. Okay, so to bring you up to speed on our episode this week, we just heard from the COO of Gab, which is a Twitter-like platform with a free speech bent that hosts a range of voices but is mostly notable for the hate stuff. Sure. He said that with the liberal establishment decade after decade pushing its ethics, its morality down the throats of people who have different sets of ethics. For instance, he uh, he referred to the gay marriage debacle. A debacle. Yeah. By us doing that, I'm putting us in that category, we are creating such a profound resentment that we are the generators of those people's hate. So what it comes down to is our Google and Facebook, you know, when they limit speech, when these giant platforms limit speech and don't include you readily in their search index, then are they exercising monopolistic control? And I can tell you that as someone who builds technology platforms, I don't want what I see as hate speech on those platforms. Don't want it. People I, other people I know who do it, don't want it. At a certain size, I think it's completely easy to say that and be like, no, nope, sorry, you're banned. But then when you have 100 million people using your system and it's an essential utility, your definition of hate speech becomes a, a really big issue. And individuals can't really be trusted. You need the government or some sort of larger ethical system to say this is truly toxic and cannot be allowed or everything must be allowed or whatever. In Europe, they, there's a, the idea of the right to be forgotten which is that if you cheat on your taxes in your 20s and now you're in your 40s and 20 years later, that's still the first thing that comes up when somebody searches for your name. You have the ability to petition and ask for Google to remove that from their search results so it doesn't come up. Google fought that. They did not want that at all. It's now part of law. People apply it. There, not here. Not here. But in Europe, Google does that. And so you can have that kind of change. It's totally possible. If you decide that anti-Semitic speech is not tolerable on your platform, which is something that, you know, essentially Germany did as a culture, I think that that's a right that you can exercise as a platform owner and controller, especially ethically if you feel that it will damage the overall experience for most people. There's a black woman academic that I follow, and I look at how people react and respond to her. Her life on Twitter is exhausting, just like essentially, you know, you don't deserve to exist over and over and over again. So what sort of process or system could you imagine that could impose the right kind of ethical sensibilities on this massively concentrated, highly efficient, machine-run universe, which is essential to the way we communicate and has incalculable power to influence us? I think that you know, ultimately, the, the community and the users are going to lead, right? And I think at a certain point, unless you're really committed or it's necessary for your job, if you just find something miserable or depressing or you just don't want to do it anymore, you're going to get the hell off the platform. And so the platforms are going to – what's going to make them respond is if growth becomes negative. If growth is positive, 
They're going to keep doing what they're doing and wait for the press to call them out. But if growth is negative, you'll see them uh, adapting to all kinds of user needs. So fundamentally, what you're saying is humans created this problem. They'll have to solve it by signing off. I don't think this life lived in public is that much fun. But, you know, for right now, this is where we're at. And these giant companies run the world of online information, and we're all dependent on them, and they're kind of dependent on us as statistical noise, though we might be. And and where does that leave ethics? It leaves ethics as an annex to public relations, as a response. That's the lousy part. You know, public relations is how you respond to public opinion, mm-hmm. right? Generated by individuals, amplified through the media, so, in a way, that's not as unhealthy as it sounds. No, no, it's just how it works. The media pokes and the giants go, ow, that hurt my toe. And then the PR person says, wait, we're dealing with that issue. Sheryl Sandberg writes a nice post and says, absolutely. We, she didn't say we failed. She said this was a fail, mm-hmm. right? Because that's, that's, it's 2017. There's no failure anymore. Well, she said that seeing... The words, how to burn Jews in a person's profile, disgusted and disappointed her. Disgusted by these sentiments and disappointed that our systems allowed this. That is a strong ethical response to a failure of a system that she manages and controls. We have long had a firm policy against hate. Our community deserves to have us enforce this policy with deep caution and care. It's good to have a policy against hate. I'm going to side. No, seriously. NBC can say it. You know, IBM can say it. So Facebook can say it. They just have to act on it in ways that other ones might not have to. Paul, thank you very much. Always a privilege. Thank you. <laughs> privilege. Paul Ford is a tech writer, commentator, entrepreneur, and our pocket ethicist. Okay. All right. Can't wait to have ethicists say, what the hell's your credential? (laughs) That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Monique Laborde, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Catcher Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter's WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.